0: going to be going through selected psalms over the pe- the next few months. I'll probably mention it a few more times as we approach the beginning of the year, but um, you may look forward to some of you probably be relieved to hear somebody else preach uh, in January and the start of February as I'm on uh, sabbatical uh, during those weeks to work on my dissertation. Um, but I uh, just want to remind you of that because this series has been been put together as sort of a, a break from Jeremiah. So these three months, we're going to be digging into these Psalms, which uh, in many ways reflect the big story of Jeremiah in such a small package. Lamenting situations and crying out to God for help, as we see in our text so clearly today, and then seeing God respond with his gracious salvation. And so, These guys in January and February, when they come, they're going to be preaching in line with this theme, and hopefully it will all be tied together pretty well by uh, the Lord. Now, uh, today, as we've titled this series, Salvation Belongs to the Lord, uh, subtitled Faith in Times of Trouble, I want to preach from Psalm 12, and I'm going to preach to you under the heading of A Pure Word to the Rescue. A pure word to the rescue. And as we get into this, I want to go ahead and frame your application for today's sermon a bit. My applications throughout, they may be all over the place. I I don't know. Um, It seems that way to me as I've prepared. But I want to frame it sort of in two ways. Uh, As we read this psalm, you're going to see that there is definitely some application we can make to the broader world around us, society. I don't even need to go into the chaos that is our society right now. Don't even need to go into the, the lies that prevail, uh, the, the false uh, speech that prevails, um, man, the, the double tongue nature of everything that is communicated on a large scale. So we look at these things, and oftentimes we're like, as the church, what in the world can we do? What sort of difference can we as Christians, the church, what sort of difference can we make? And in these moments, we feel small. But as one writer said, well, uh, Plummer, he said, it is no new thing for the church to be small. He says, think of Noah, who was reduced to his family. Think of Elijah. There were 7,000 that had not bowed the knee to Baal, That's not very many. Think of Jacob. Jacob was always small in the eyes of the world. Think of the 12. What could Jesus do with 12 disciples? We see what he did. Plummer says Christ's people are a little flock. He says the strength of the church consists not in the number of her visible members, but in the almightiness of her head. So we may make some application in regard to being the church in the world and all the things that seem to prevail. And it seems like the godly man, as we're going to see in this text, is slipping away. The godly man is, is fading away. But I would also say there's much application of this psalm in the life of the saints of God. Since we see... From David today in Psalm 12, there are those among the people of God who are driven by lies and promote lies. Their tongue leads them. People lie to their neighbors. People put on a facade. They make people think that one thing is going on when that's not the reality at all. I had a professor in my seminary days that often talked about the difference between, in the church, the professors, those who simply profess the Lord Jesus, and the possessors, those people who actually have the salvation that the Lord Jesus wrought. See, a church throughout history has often wrestled with the fact that Among the saints of God, there are always those who, as Jude says, sort of slipped in, as the King James Version says, unawares. They slipped in the back door. They didn't come through Christ. And so we recognize that even though this is the case, as as Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Christians who are committed to the church being as holy as the church can possibly be this side of eternity, we want to we find those who do not believe and bring them to salvation. Or their works will ultimately show that they don't belong among the saints of God. There is this sort of wheat and chaff that the Lord is going to carry out among the church But we recognize there are some simply professors of the faith, and then there are those who possess the faith. David is wrestling with this because it seems as though the people of God are being overwhelmed by these who simply want to claim the name of God, but they utter lies. They utter falsehood. As we get into this text, the context is easy. We don't know the context. We don't know what was going on during this time. We don't know what the story, this psalm refers to. If there was a story in the background, like uh, Kyle told us last week, you know, uh, David and, and Absalom, and Absalom was trying to kill his father, and that's the context of that Psalm 3. This week we have no idea, and so it lends itself to a wide variety of applications. Hopefully the Spirit will help in some of that today. Join me, though, as we read Psalm 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart. They speak, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord... Will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Pray with me. Father, we need your help through the ministry of the Spirit today that we may see Jesus in this psalm of salvation. We are so grateful for your salvation of us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, a pure word to the rescue. A pure word to the rescue. First thing I want you to notice about this before we get into our our points today, there's nothing really that personal about this psalm. Oftentimes, you see David and the writers of psalms pleading out for their own case, their own condition. But this is, as one writer says, Now, one of the many instances when the Psalms rise above the purely personal and local and they look to the later needs of the church of God. So David is pleading on behalf of the whole people of God who seem to be overwhelmed by this perpetuation of lies. I want to give you the theme this morning, Man's Multiplying Lies drive the faithful to assurance based upon the pure word of God. Man's multiplying lies drive the faithful to assurance based upon the pure word of God. I want to give you uh, a few points today, three points today, three handles for this text. First off, from verses 1 and 2, God recognizes the cry of the faithful. God recognizes the cry of the faithful right there at the very start of the verse, is save. Save. This is the only imperative in the whole psalm. And I want to be clear, this is, not, this is not asking for some help. God, would you just help me out a little bit? I just need a, a leg up. Give me a step stool where I can get where I need to go. No, this is, this is not some sort of simple help. This is full deliverance. This is a cry that says, Apart from you, we have no hope. David sees the need and he knows they are doomed apart from the gracious hand of God. And you see these words he uses The godly one is gone, the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. uh, Back when. Uh, I guess just over a week ago, goodness, it seems like forever, we had, uh, you know, Halloween, had <laughs> to think for a minute, uh, getting uh, treats, and uh, even the little bit of trick-or-treating that we were able to do this year, uh, my kids ended up with a good bit of candy, and so I recall having a conversation about candy, and I was probably trying to, you know, get some from them, and um, I remember one of my children said, I got a, a ton of Kit Kats. I've got like a million. And I said, you got a million Kit Kats? And, uh, and they were like, well, it's, it's, it's 20, but it's basically like a million. And so you get that. They're trying to emphasize the, the, the fact of what's going on. And Right here, David is doing the same thing. There is no one godly left. They're vanished, right? He's doing the same thing, emphasizing the condition that he finds the people of God in. There are two reasons that he does this. He sees disappearing Devotion. Two reasons for the cry. First off, disappearing devotion. So David feels as though the faithful ones are vanishing, they're gone. It seems as though the saints are few and far between. There's that hopeless feeling of being overtaken by evil. As I referenced Elijah, you recall? You recall the story of Elijah? First Kings 19. All right, he's just defeated the prophets of Baal. 450 prophets of Baal. He slew... I just love saying that word. He slew the prophets of Baal at the brook Kishon. And then guess what? Jezebel says, if it's the last thing I do, basically, I'm going to get that Elijah. And what does Elijah do? 450 prophets he just killed, and he is terrified of this woman. It's almost laughable. So he hears about Jezebel's words. He runs, and he gets to the point. And and it seems ridiculous, but you remember your own situation, don't you? All those situations that, looking back now, seem so ridiculous. He runs, and then he basically curls up in a corner and asks God to just let him die. Two times. Two times during a fast, he says, I have been to the Lord. I have been jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I alone, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Twice he says this. See, Elijah was in that feeling. He was in that, that moment of Being overwhelmed by evil, it's constant. It flows against the purposes of God. And so he says, I would just rather die than continue in this fight. And we know this feeling. We know this feeling, don't we? We often testify to the rampant wickedness that abounds in our society. But also the worldliness that abounds even within the church. You know, from day one, as I came to Cedarview, my hope was that we could be just a healthy church. Because I look around and I don't see healthy churches. And often I have lamented, why is it, speaking of the the Memphis area, the Mid-South, why is it that in the land of 3,000 churches, It's well over that at this point. In the land of 3,000 churches, why is it so difficult to find a decent one? I think it's exactly what David was experiencing right here this disappearing devotion. We lament it, it causes us inner turmoil. There is this disappearing devotion to God. The godly man is gone. But also, verse 2, deepening depravity. Deepening depravity. He says in verse 2, everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and double heart they speak. You know, neighbors should be the trusted ones, right? I would just ask you by way of brief application, what kind of neighbor are you, church? You're the kind of neighbor that people can count on, the kind of neighbor that can be trusted, the kind of neighbor that's not going to utter lies and flatter people just because it's easy. It's easy to maintain appearances. It's easy to talk one way in one crowd and another way in another crowd. There's much that can be said about that, but... We would ask, like, the, the man who confronted Jesus, who said, who is my neighbor? And I would tell you right now, especially right now, and especially if you're a member of Cedarview Baptist Church, it's that, that person around you right now. It's that person that's sitting under this same roof. I want to remind you, this is a king, David, talking about God's people These are the supposed people of God that are promoting lies. So the first place to apply this is not in the world. I would say the first place we got to apply this is within the church. Plummer says here, Nothing so deforms the church of God as disingenuous members. Plummer is basically saying our tongues become a way that we mutate what God has blessed us with in the church. We deform it in our words. And he gives a list of things here. Utter lies, flattering lips, double heart. This lies is empty talk. There's no substance or truth. Morrison says, honest-hearted worldlings who shrink not from the avowal of their proper characters. Let me summarize that. Worldly folk do what worldly folk do, okay? He says, those folks are innocent compared with those who wound character and feeling under the hallowed garb of friendship formed and fostered in the sanctuary of God. So we walk around here and pretend that we are friends, and then we speak these lies. It's empty. This is what happens within the church of God. Unfortunately, I would say social distancing in the church isn't that hard because Christians have years of practice in spiritual distancing. We get close enough to say, I love you, but distant enough to avoid accountability, to hide sins, to dodge spiritual conversations, to practice the faith. It is hazardous to your soul to carry on a facade among the saints. Morrison would also say here, it is a mournful thing. When those who are brethren cannot confide in each other. They utter lies. They speak with flattering lips. Proverbs twenty-six twenty-eight. A lying tongue hates its victims and a flattering mouth works ruin. Twenty eight twenty-three Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor. That's meaningful relationship. You rebuke somebody, you earn favor because they know you're willing to speak the truth to them out of love for them. 29.5, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. So according to Solomon, flattery is a trap of ruin. It runs contrary to the bond that we have in Christ as we heard earlier 1 Peter 1:22 having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for what a sincere a sincere brotherly love love one another earnestly from a pure heart Romans 12:9 let love be genuine we don't need the facade we've got enough masks We need sincere and meaningful relationships, not flattery. So lies, flattery, and then a double heart. We would say it like this. This is talking out of both sides of your mouth. It's to say one thing but work the opposite. It's one way here and one way, another way over there. All these ways, we see this deepening depravity. So first... God recognizes the cry of the faithful. He cries out because of these things. Secondly, God renders liars speechless. God renders liars speechless. Verses 3 and 4. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, and our lips are with us. Who is master over us? So David puts body parts to the psalm, instruments of wickedness is what Paul would call them, the lips and the tongue, both of which work according to the heart's crooked intent that he just mentioned in verse 2. So I want to give you an image that is a little different, an image that is like the one Jesus proclaims, an image of a, a natural spring. And we may say there is a source and there is a stream there's a source and there's a stream. So first off, we see the source. The heart fills with pride. To give you an illustration and then bring it to you, church, there was a, a philosopher by the name of Voltaire. You may have heard of this occasion. It is really the, the irony that God works out according to his uh, providence. But Voltaire was filled with such pride. He was this man of verse 4 who said, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Voltaire said when he was living, in 20 years, Christianity will be no more. My single hand shall destroy the edifice it took 12 apostles to rear. And then Boyce says in response, he says, but the year that he wrote that, The British Museum paid the Russian government $500,000 for a Bible manuscript while on the shelves of a bookstore in London, Voltaire's books were selling for just eight cents apiece. 50 years, get this, 50 years after this prideful statement, the house where Voltaire wrote his literature, became the headquarters of the Geneva Bible Society. So his house, to write, became a place to disseminate all the Christian scriptures. And so you would say, well, I'm not Voltaire. I'm not, I'm not this private. I would never say things like that. But don't be so foolish to think that you're simply up against a book of words that needs to be mastered by the human mind. Did you pick up your Bible this week and think, man, this is something that I'm just going to use? We heard earlier, the word of God stands forever. It will not pass away. Jesus says, not one jot or tittle. But Christian, are you any different from Voltaire when you neglect God's word? You're essentially... Casting off the words of the master, finding your faulty solutions from within? I don't know. From without? It's all insufficient. You're relying on your own counsel to handle your own problems or turning to some other broken cistern. But your well is poisoned. Your source is poisoned by that heart. That Jeremiah seventeen nine heart, deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. You see, your heart fills with pride every time you refuse to open God's word or listen to God's word. There's a source here, and then there's a stream. The heart overflows at the mouth. Jesus says this, Luke six forty five. out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So I would just apply it this way. If what comes out is bitterness, complaining, grumbling, if what comes out is fake, manufactured, or insincere, if what comes out is criticism, slander, and gossip, then what does that say about your heart? And the response here, verse 3, the Lord's response to this kind of pride, this kind of unwillingness to submit to his word may the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. There's a separation that occurs, if you will, for the unsaved. Those that did, in fact, slip in unaware, slip in through the back door, God eventually cuts them off from the covenant community. This is what David is praying for. God, these people who are not really in this for your worship, who don't truly believe, who haven't actually been transformed by the gospel, cut them off, Lord. But for the saved, there is a terrifying assurance here that God assuredly disciplines and sanctifies you from those sinful fleshly ways so either way there will ultimately be found no corruption among the saints of God why do we labor toward holiness as a church and individually because that's where we're destined to be That is what we are destined to be. And so we come to the good news of the gospel. In our faith, we are united with Jesus. We're united with him in a death like his. The old man is gone, and there is a resurrected man, a faithful man. And we live, Christian. We ought to live. And this is that evidence we're going to point to in just a moment. We live that resurrected life presenting the members, the lips and the tongue, presenting the members of our bodies as instruments of righteousness. Romans 6. See what God does? He's either going to take your speech away in judgment or He's going to discipline your speech and make you holy. He's going to render those lies. Powerless, He's going to render liars speechless. Thirdly, finally, God reassures the afflicted. Verses 5 through 8. God reassures the afflicted. See, we go from lament to crying out to hearing God respond. We may say, Jeremiah, in a nutshell, I want to give you four steps of this reassurance. I hate using steps in the sermon uh, because sermons are not like how-to guides. You know what I'm saying? But I couldn't get around steps. Four steps of being reassured. This is how God has ordained it. First off, there is a promise from God. God promises. God promises. Verse 5. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord, I will place him in the safety for which he longs. So the affliction of the true saints of God stirs the Lord. That ought to be a a wonderful promise for you to hear. He knows your affliction. Now, it's not clear if David is including himself in this category of poor and needy as a king, but I'm persuaded that that David, at the very least, is speaking on behalf of those who are hit hardest by a culture of lies. So God has reached a threshold of tolerance for this evil. In response, he hears his people cry out. He hears you cry out, Christian. He promises here to both arise and save you know, I think about my kids when they were learning how to ride bikes. You know, if you did the training wheel method, and we did that some and got away from training wheels. I'll tell you about that later if you want to know. Uh, training wheel method, you know, you put them on the bike for the first time, and you have the training wheels off. And, and dad, it's usually dad, right here, you know, sort of holding on to the seat, holding on to the handlebars. And you let go, and there's this moment of, oh, are they going to make it? If they start to fall, you step right in. Because you don't want them to wreck, do you? Even though they end up wrecking because we're imperfect. We step in at just the right time. At just the right time. and You know, this is just what God does. And in the biggest possible way, at the right time, Paul says to the Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Born under the law. To redeem those under the law. At the right time, God stepped in. His promise came true. And so we are not simply operating out of a Psalm 12 looking toward a redemption. Folks, we have the completion of that promise in Jesus. He is the pure word to the rescue. His promise salvation Is not even just simple rescue to keep us from falling down or to keep us from suffering in eternity. As if we are, as we said a few weeks ago, just brought back up to neutral with God. No, it's not a simple rescue, but it is exceedingly safe. He places us in the safety to which we long. We long for safety. We long for security. And God comes through with that in abundance. Calvin says, to the unjustly oppressed, God promises an entire restitution. We are not only saved from the penalty of our sin, but we are saved to every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So there's a promise from God. God promises. Secondly, we proclaim, verse 6. Verse 6 The word of the Lord, the words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You get this seven times pure. The number seven, pure to perfection. Perfectly pure. As in, no emptiness, no flattery, no waste, no miscommunication, no error, no deception. God's words are more, as one writer says, more replete with meaning, with faithfulness, with grace than the best minds and the strongest faith have ever conceived or alleged. He says, there is something amazing in the power of God's word. It differs from all other writings. On the purity of God's word, Spurgeon said, The Bible has passed through the furnace of persecution, literary criticism, philosophic doubt, and scientific discovery, and has lost nothing but those human interpretations which clung to it as alloy to precious ore. The experience of the saints has tried it in every conceivable manner, but he says not a single doctrine or promise has been consumed in the most excessive heat. Just like Voltaire, mankind has tried to apply every measure of heat to the word of God and it always stands the test. It will stand the test forever. So we have this promise from God and then we have this truth to proclaim. I want to bring this to you, okay? There's some heavy words right there. Bring this to you. God has made a promise in salvation Ultimately, through the blood of his own son. And then the writer says, Here's the truth God's word remains, it's pure. You can trust it. And then we see verse 7 there is the proof of faith. We prove, we could say, You, O Lord, will keep them, you will guard us from this generation forever. David recites the only proper response here. He's taking God at his word. He's standing on the promise. Right? So saints, when you hear or read a promise of God, believe it. Believe it. Plummer brought up wonderful application here. And I would encourage you this way. Why spend so much of our time mulling over our poor circumstances and asking God to change them when all the while he has promised deliverance from them. So Plummer says, what Christians need is not less trial or lighter affliction, but stronger and simpler faith. Do you get that? How much of your prayers are spent asking God to change something in your life? God changes, change that. I would be better off in this condition, this situation. When all the while he has promised your deliverance, he has promised he is near because of Christ. He has promised the Holy Spirit is always at your disposal. He's always promised you a way out. In the end, your suffering, your trials, your affliction, the people who come against you with lies will seem like nothing compared to the weight of glory. Believe it, when God says, through his word, I will save you. Furthermore, he says, this is forever. There's no expiration date. You will guard us from this generation forever. Those God saves, God keeps. We have this proof of our faith right here. So there is a promise from God. There's a proclamation of the truth. And then there's the proof of faith. And then fourthly, finally, and we will conclude, there is preparation for another day. We prepare. Verse 8. He concludes, and it's almost a letdown, right? We think glorious ending, but then this psalm was written Still looking forward to that ultimate salvation. And so we can understand in the same way we long for the final conclusion, the consummation of all things in Christ when He returns. We long for a day when the church will be holy. We long for a day when we will actually be holy, sanctified, fully glorified in the presence of our God. So we can resonate. This resonates with us. On every side, the wicked prowl. As vileness is exalted among the children of man. Our circumstances may not change immediately. I would tell you they're probably not at all going to change immediately. So what do we do? We mount up. We equip ourselves with the truth of God's word. We believe in that truth. We tell that truth to one another. We anticipate another day of his keeping grace. And his ultimate salvation. We prepare. So I want to encourage you in those ways this morning. As we conclude, man's multiplying lies drive the faithful to assurance based upon the pure Word of God. But as you think about this regarding your own condition, We're in a bit of a tough spot with this song. You know, as a believer, I recognize areas. I recognize areas where the evil fleshly ways show up in my life. When I didn't set out to tell the lie, right? You didn't either. It just happened that way. I want to preserve their feelings in this matter. It, it doesn't matter if they know the truth or not, right? You see this in your own life. We lie. You're a liar. <laughs> I'm a liar. We deceive. We double talk. And yet, Christian, we long for the salvation that God provides from those who do these very same things. But we can't have it both ways. So as we respond to the word of God, repent, repent of these evil ways. David is a good example for us. This brother was a liar and a murderer, but he sought the forgiveness that came only from the Lord against you and you alone have I sinned. Repent of these evil ways and know God's saving power. But maybe your life is so characterized by insincerity that you don't have the assurance of this psalm. Maybe you don't even know if you've ever sincerely, truly been saved. You don't know if you're a true possessor of God's salvation or just a professor of salvation. The unfortunate thing is, Maybe in time we could tell if the fruit is from God. When it comes down to it, you're the one that's going to have to deal with God about your own salvation, about your own lack of assurance, about how today, without responding to the word of God in faith, you're going to walk out the doors and you're going to continue your life still wondering if when you die you will be in hell or not. Look, Jesus came, died, and rose again, as John says, so that you may know you have eternal life. Turn to him in faith. Repent of all these sinful ways. Turn to Jesus in faith today. If that's you, I will gladly receive you during our song or After the service, come speak to me. Christian, don't neglect the opportunity to cast off the old man this morning, believing afresh on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we once again bless your name for your word. It is true. It is pure. It is right. There is no error. God, it leads us in the way everlasting. Father, all those that would think that they could simply master the word of God, God, bring them to a place of humility and confession that you are too great to be mastered. That your ways are better and higher than ours. Father, bring them to the place of humility that they would, that we would, once again, confess all of our shortcoming, all of our so-called wisdom. And let us turn to the wisdom that you have in your son, Jesus. Father, bring about these things by the ministry of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.